The Optometry Talks podcast series is brought to you by Optometry New South Wales ACT, your peak professional body. Welcome to episode one of Optometry Talks, navigating the locum space. I'm Audrey Malloy from Optometry New South Wales ACT, and I'm talking today with Andrew McKinnon about working as a locum optometrist in Australia, why you might consider locum work, how to get started, and what to look out for. Andrew has been CEO of Optometry New South Wales ACT for over 20 years, and no one knows more than him about the rewards and challenges of locum work. Welcome, Andrew. Good morning, Audrey. Can I start by asking you, what is it that attracts optometrists to locum work? Um, Look, uh, almost always, as wouldn't come as a surprise, it's the money. Um, People look at it as a way of earning a much higher income than they might as an employee. Um, Beyond that, there's the flexibility. Often people can't find work that suits them, the hours, the location. And so again, the locuming gives them an opportunity to be more flexible in how they work. Um, And sometimes there's a disillusion with regular work, the way in which you're being asked to work. So there's a number of factors, but certainly money and flexibility are the two big ones. So, Andrew, the money seems to attract many people to locum work, but in your opinion, does it really stack up? Um, Good question. Um, So if if I could answer by way of an example. An employer will pay you a salary, and then typically on top of that, they will add 29% to cover the on costs like superannuation, sick leave, annual leave, public holidays, workers' comp, long service leave, all the extra bits. So let's say you're earning $85,000 a year, about $40 an hour. A locum in Sydney, earning around about $75 an hour. So nearly double, so it sounds good. To that salary, we need to add 29%, bringing it up to about $52 an hour. So still a gap, still looking at that at $23-odd an hour gap in uh, between what you would earn as an employee and what you would earn as a locum. Still looking pretty good. The problem, of course, is that locums don't have a guaranteed income. An employee is employed, say, full-time. They get paid for 40 hours a week, every week, 52 weeks a year. Locums, not so. So you would have to make sure, as a locum, that your time where you're earning an income was sufficient to make up for the gaps which will occur when there's downtime and no work available. Okay, so it might actually suit someone who doesn't necessarily want to work 40 hours a week. They may want to work fewer hours but get a higher hourly pay um, and end up on a similar on a similar package to someone who's working in full-time employment. Look, definitely. And that's that's a very common uh, example of the sort of person who likes locuming work. Um, you may only wish to work six months a year uh, okay. because of other things, or you may only want to work 30 hours a week. And yes, if you if you can tie down reasonably regular locum work, uh, that can that can work for you. Yes. And so from a tax perspective, Andrew, what actually defines locum work? So the critical thing with a locum is that you must be an independent contractor. This has been established a number of times, and if anyone's particularly interested, there's a a landmark case called VABU, V-A-B-U, 
which you can go and Google. It's all over the internet. But what that says is that if you are truly a locum, means you're an independent contractor. You must provide more than your labor. So if you just turn up and work, the tax department thinks of you as an employee. There's a few other elements to it. Um, you must have the ability to get someone else to work for you if you wish. So you control the way in which the work is delivered. And you must have the ability to set your own terms of work and how you work. So direction is a key facet of employment. Typically, you will work for multiple clients. You won't have just one person that you work for. And you need to be aware of there's sham contracting legislation, uh, which attempts to look at contracts which are set up solely to avoid the tax system. So there are some big penalties under the sham contracting law, and you need to be aware of those. And so if someone's a locum optometrist, how is that different from other kinds of casual or part-time work? Um, so obviously, casual and part-time work is employment. Mm -hmm. And the hallmarks of that are that you are directed by your employer. So your employer can tell you what you do and how you do it. Mm -hmm. um, you will generally provide only your labor. So you won't bring your own equipment. And there will be a regularity of work. So you will either work full-time or you might work part-time every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or it might be just occasionally every Friday. Uh, but the regularity is, again, a key aspect of what defines employment. I see. So, in fact, many people that consider themselves a locum, or, or maybe even on a locum list, are really casual em employees because they're just going in, doing the work, and getting paid for the for the work they're asked to do. Yes. We, we see that a lot where... Exactly as you described, people call themselves a locum, inverted commas, but in reality they're a casual and, or, or occasionally part-timers. And is there any problem with them calling themselves a locum, um, you know, for, for employment purposes, as long as they call themselves a casual for their tax return? Does it cause any problems to finding themselves as a locum, putting uh, themselves out there? It's not so much what you call yourself, it's how you structure your tax affairs. So okay. the reason that the tax department wants you to be an employee in most cases is that they then get your PAYG tax every week, fortnight, month. Mm -hmm. As a locum, because you are an independent contractor and an independent small business, uh, you will probably only remit your BAS every three months. And on occasions, you'll only do it every year. Okay. So you can see from a cash flow point of view, the tax office is much keener to have people classed as employees than as contractors. So if someone's working um, as a casual or as an employee, even on an ad hoc basis for, for example, a corporate, they shouldn't really be invoicing the company for the number of hours that they've worked. Is, is that right? Unless they're a, pro a proper locum. Correct. If they're a proper locum, sure issue them with an invoice. But if you're turning up to work on a regular basis for a regular employer, that's what you are. You're an employee and you should be paid just the same as any other employee in the market. Okay. And in terms of benefits, do locum optometrists have any additional benefits other than the, the money that they get paid? Do they have any sick, sick leave or holiday pay or anything like that? Generally not. Uh, because you're running your own small business, you take on the burden of all the benefits that an employer would normally pay. So uh, you're right, apart from the possibly higher hourly rate in real terms, there's, there's very little extra benefit to you. Okay, so it's really up to the individual locum to make sure they're charging enough to cover all of those other benefits. Correct. Okay. 
So I'm an optometrist and I'd like to try this. What do I need to do to get started? Okay, so let's work through it in a kind of reasonably logical sequence. First thing you need to do is to, to, to decide what structure you will use for your business. So is that going to be a proprietary limited company or are you going to be a sole trader or possibly a partnership? But we'll exclude that from the conversation. So a company is often required by the corporate um, organizations and they won't take on uh, locums who are sole traders. Reason for that is simple. Um, If you are a sole trader locum, then the employer, inverted commas, has to pay superannuation on your behalf. The corporates clearly don't want to do that because that's an additional administrative and cost burden for them. And so they will only deal with companies. Mm. So you need your own company to work for one of the big corporates. Um, Having sorted that out, whichever way you go, uh, you then get an ABN, either company ABN or sole trader ABN. You'll need a Medicare provider number attached to your home address. That's generally the easiest way to do it, which means it's portable wherever you go. Um, If you are going back to somewhere reasonably regularly, um, then obviously get one for that location. But if you're just locuming around on an ad hoc basis, one attached to your home address is a good way to do it. And so, Andrew, how do I get this new Medicare number? Um, Simple, you'll have your own provider number now. The Medicare provider number uh, will simply change the suffix on your number. So you apply through HPOS, the Health Professionals Online Services Portal. It's uh, usually accessed via PRODA, another acronym, uh, Provider Digital Access. Now, most members should be familiar with both of those. They are the online portals which replaced the old um, Medicare online services. Um, If members aren't familiar with them, uh, they should contact the association either at a state level or through the national member support team and we'll be happy to assist you. And so do you need to get a different number for each different place that you're locoming generally? Only if you're going back there on a reasonably regular basis. If not, just use the one attached to your home address. Okay, so you get get the you provide your home address as the as the address associated yes. with that provider number, and that allows you to travel to numerous different places. Correct. Um, you need to be registered for GST if your GST income exceeds seventy five thousand dollars in a year, um, and it's important to delineate that from other income. So if you're employed and a locum, so you're doing a bit of both, your employment income as a salary does not count towards GST. So it's only income which attracts GST. Um, you need to have a tax invoice, a tax invoice stationery, and a standard locum agreement. And the association has a manual which can as, ex, uh, assist with examples of that. And finally, um, regardless of what jurisdiction you're in in Australia, there is some form of working with children check required. So. If you are moving between states, you'll need to keep across that as you move boundaries. Okay. And then what about professional indemnity insurance? So you're covered uh, as a member. You're covered by the association's professional indemnity insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, if you happen not to be a member, then, of course, you will need to get that anyway because you need that to practice. Um, and you can certainly get that commercially in the market. And does that insurance cover you everywhere in Australia and New Zealand? Our professional indemnity insurance covers you for practice anywhere in Australia and New Zealand, uh, but if New Zealand coverage is required, there is a small additional fee to extend it. Uh, The commercial insurers, they generally ask where you will be practicing, so you just need to make sure that as a locum that commercial insurance covered you, but it should be okay, but it may require a call to the insurer. Um, Just one other thing while we're on insurance, 
Um, some employers, particularly the big corporates, will require you to have public liability insurance. It's not strictly necessary because public liability insurance attaches to a location, um, and so they will have public liability insurance, but it is very commonplace for the big insurers to ask you to have your own public liability insurance. That comes through any of the big commercial insurers like CGU, Allianz, QBE. How much is public liability going to set you back? Um, some big corporates do want um, their locums to have their own public liability cover. If, the, if this is the case, then it can be arranged through Optometry Australia's Advantage Partners, being BMS or Guild Insurance, for around about $200. Um, it is available through other large commercial insurers, um, so it might be wise to compare what's on offer. Okay. Um, so do you think there's differences between regional and urban areas when it comes to local work? Um, look, there are. Uh, there's certainly a difference in terms of money. Okay. Um, in Sydney, as I said, 70 to $75 an hour is about what you would expect. Um, in the regional areas, you would probably be looking at 90 to $100 an hour as a, as a rough guide. Um, so certainly pay is one. Um, clearly in metro areas, you have a much wider network of referrers that you can use, so plenty of ophthalmologists around. Um, although when you're going to a practice in a regional centre, certainly the big regional centres like Dubbo and Armidale and Tamworth, etc., um, will have an ophthalmology uh, workforce there. Um, and even if not, the practice will, they will know who they refer to, so they should have that resource available to you. Um, I'd say that it helps to have therapeutics if you go into regional areas, um, simply because in many cases you'll be the primary, um, primary treater, um, and so therapeutics is certainly advantageous. Mm. And make sure you negotiate travel and accommodation in advance, uh, because if you end up in an agreement where you're being paid, but then you've got to pay for hotels and food, um, you can find your earnings eaten up very quickly. Okay. Um, what about interstate? If I'm working as a locum interstate, are there any implications for registration and so on? Um, registration, no. Registration uh, now covers you Australia-wide, so you can move between states without any problems whatsoever. Um, the only difficulty um, is, as I said, the working with children check. You'll just need to keep across that as you change state boundaries because even if you have one in, for example, New South Wales, they are not transferable. Um, okay. So your New South Wales one does not work in Victoria. Okay. Now, what questions would you recommend that I would ask my employer before I start this? Okay. Um, firstly, and possibly obviously, uh, clarify the money that you are being paid and the terms on which you are being paid. Um, it's the biggest source of problem that we get uh, when locums are around. Make sure there is a contract or at the very least an exchange of letters or emails which sets out the basic terms. As I said, we've got an example that people are most welcome to use. Um, clarify your allowances, travel, accommodation, food. Make sure that, again, the quantum and the terms are understood by both parties. Uh, clarify when payments are to be made. We recommend that uh, a locum invoice on a basis of not greater than seven days for payment less if that works for you and for the employer, but certainly not more. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, check your referral points. Where are your local ophthalmologists, endocrinologists, etc. Understand where they are. Check on major equipment in the practice. Um, make sure you are familiar with it. 
it's apparently quite common to go into practices and find equipment that is very old and certainly for some of our younger colleagues you may never have used it so good idea to ask not only what's in the practice so what slit lamp uh, do you have a slit lamp yes what type of slit lamp do you have so that you can make sure that you're familiar with that piece of equipment um, check on staff support will you have a staff team around you or, or you or are you basically on your own and check practice management software so is it Sunix? is it optimate is it ocelot i think is the other one um, that's around and again make sure that you've got a working familiarity with that practice management software and what if you don't have you haven't used those softwares before is there can the association assist members with um, getting familiar with those yes we can uh, we've, we've certainly done that in the past um, uh, we're fortunate that uh, you Audrey in particular have uh, some expertise with Sunix so that's terrific um, but we also have contacts who have experience with the other programs so if a member for example had no idea had never used Sunix we could uh, get that person in sit them down for a couple of hours take them through it and give them a working familiarity with the program we could also do that with other programs if that became necessary. So very happy to help members in that regard. Okay. Now, do you think that I need to bring my own equipment if, I was, if, I, if I'm doing some locum work? What do I need to bring with me? Um, uh, a two-part answer. One is that you would usually bring your own handheld equipment, and that's simply because you're familiar with it. Uh, but it's important if you think back to one of my earlier answers about what defines a true locum. Uh, one of the things is you provide more than your labor. So by definition, you would have to provide some additional equipment. So having your own handheld equipment is on a couple of fronts an extremely advisable idea. Okay, I mean, I've heard of people bringing their own tonometer with them to measure intraocular pressure because maybe the practice they're going to does, uses something they're not familiar with. Is, is that a common practice? Yes, yes it is. And particularly with the more portable ones like the eye care and that sort of thing, um, people are more and more taking that around. But you're right, if it's a, a critical piece of equipment like a tonometer and you have one which you can take, which you're familiar with and you get consistent results, yes, that'd be a good idea. So you need to be comfortable with what you're going to be working with that you can do a test that, you, that you're you're professionally comfortable with definitely when when the doors open on your first day in the practice you are expected to be able to operate to an acceptable professional level and if you're standing there stumbling around without any idea of how the equipment works that's going to be a problem for you okay so finally Andrew what do you think the greatest challenges are for optometrists in locum work um, probably the first one is resisting the temptation to call yourself a locum when you're not, and that goes mm. back to the independent contractor thing. Um, there's sometimes quite a bit of pressure from employers, inverted commas, to call yourself a locum because it's easy. They, you issue an invoice, they pay you, and that's the end of it. But it's a, a little more complicated than that. So you've got to resist that temptation. Um, going to an unfamiliar practice, as I just said, with equipment and facilities, certainly get yourself as prepared as you can be before you go. Um, the method of working in practices obviously varies and we do have locums in particular who struggle sometimes with the way in which practices work and that can often be the case with corporates because they have a particular manner of, of operating. Um, so you need to be familiar with and comfortable with the way in which you'll be asked to work. Um, in regional areas, um, obviously, you'll be away from home. 
um, and with all that that entails, but equally, it opens up some great opportunities for socialising because regional communities are very friendly and very welcoming. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be there for a week or two, there'll be great opportunities to get involved with the local community. Um, Being organised, especially around tax, is a big one. Um, You will be running your own small business. So that means you have to do BAS statements and returns and tax returns and all those sorts of things. So you need to be well organised, especially around claiming your legitimate expenses. Um, and finally, the, the biggest challenge is not getting paid for the work that you do. And my advice to members in this is, is very simple. You have a zero tolerance policy. You issue your invoice on agreed terms. So if your agreed terms are seven days, That's what you expect. You have zero tolerance for people running over that time. If an invoice is not paid by the due date, you make contact with the employer and you say, if I'm not paid within 24 hours, I will stop work. And if you're not paid within 24 hours, you stop work. Mm. You don't think, oh, I'll just help them out by working a little bit longer. If you're not being paid, you're not working. That's the end of the story. And my apocryphal story is that we have one member who we're assisting who is owed in excess of $60,000 because they worked unpaid for over seven months Um, and that's just madness. So if you're not being paid, you're not working and you have to be very, very hard-nosed about that. So there are some horror stories out there. There are a few. (laughs) Um, Just coming back to something you mentioned earlier about working for um, a large company or a corporate If you are truly working as a locum, do you have control over how you practice if you're working as a locum for a corporate over maybe the length of time you spend with the patient or or do you is that something you negotiate with the with your employer? Um, Good question. One of the hallmarks of being a contractor, an independent contractor, is that you have control over the way in which you work. Of course, in practice, that doesn't work if you go into a corporate. A corporate will have its way of doing things, and that will apply whether you are a locum or an employee. Um, so whilst the, the corporate can't direct you in terms of what you do in a consultation, because that's your professional judgment, they can say to you, our consultations run every 20 minutes, whatever it happens to be, right. and you're expected to stick to that schedule. That's one of the reasons that you need to make those inquiries first because if, for example, you've come from an environment where you can do 45-minute consults, you may be really challenged by having to do one in 20 minutes. So you need to be aware of that and comfortable with it before you go. Okay. So, Andrew, just before we go, if a member is interested in some of the resources that you've referred to um, during this podcast, how do they get their hands on them? Easiest way is to obviously contact the office. That can be done by phone, uh, 02-9712-2199, or via email, and I would use info at oaansw.com.au. So we have, uh, we've got Audrey, yes, Audrey yourself, um, Paula Catalinic, and myself, all of whom have had quite a bit of experience across locums and working arrangements and uh, we'll be more than happy to assist. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. I've learned a lot myself and we'll be following up in the near future with another podcast where we hear directly from a panel of optometrists about their experience working as locums.
Thanks, Audrey. Great to be with you. I hope it's been of use. This episode of Optometry Talks was brought to you compliments of Optometry New South Wales ACT. 